You know, I was thinking about what to teach. Oftentimes when I have to, when I have just one study that I'm teaching, I often like to kind of share what the Lord's been doing in my own life. And if I could kind of be transparent with you for a while, or tonight rather, um, lately I feel like the Lord's been really working in my life in a sense that I've been feeling really dry lately. Anybody else ever felt like that? Especially those of you who have walked with the Lord for a while. It's really easy to kind of grow, I think, comfortable in our walks. And we start to go crump, or we start to grow comfortable uh, with even the Lord himself. You know, we spend so much time with the extraordinary that he starts to become ordinary. And, um, you know, one of the great illustrations of this is I used to live up in the mountains. And normally when people would visit, they would see all the trees, they would see all the snow and everything. And they were just in awe of this, the, the beauty of where we lived. And I'd just kind of be like, it's a tree. Like, you know, <laughs> so what? You know, it's just snow. It's like, I mean, it literally falls in my front yard. I mean, I have to shovel that stuff. It's like, I, I don't like it. <laughs> and yet we can kind of get that way with the Lord. We spend so much time with him. We spend so much time studying his word that he kind of becomes maybe a little too familiar, a little too small, a little too ordinary for us. And so the Lord's been working on that in my life because I've noticed that I started to get into a routine where it was just kind of started to become this just movements of doing the same thing, of serving the Lord in that way. And so um, lately he's been trying to give me a renewed vision of who he is. And so hopefully I can bring some of that to you guys tonight. And so if you would go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 8. I'm going to pray and, and uh, we'll get in this together. Father, we just thank you that we can come here, God, and we can study your word and we can grow in our knowledge of you. And God, I confess I'm not even worthy to be standing in this pulpit. God, who am I, God, to proclaim your word? God, as you try to funnel your infinite being through the finite me, God, I thank you that you've chosen to put me here in this position, God, that God, you love me enough to use me for your kingdom. And so, God, I just pray that tonight, that every word would be from you. God, that there would be nothing of myself that you would empty me as I proclaim your word with boldness and with love. And so, God, I just pray that you'd be here tonight. Would you be here speaking? God, would you be here uh, testifying to us of who you are? God, I even pray that I would just step back and let you teach the study. Because, God, we need what you have to say, not what I have to say. God, I have nothing to offer in and of myself except you. God, as Paul so rightly said, I I claim to know nothing except Christ and him crucified, God. And so that's what I come here with. God, is your word. And so would you be with us? Would you speak to us? God, would you challenge us? God, would you encourage us? Or, God, maybe we need to be rebuked, God. But whatever it is, I pray that you would speak to us tonight. God, we invite you to be here. We invite your Holy Spirit to speak into our lives and to change us. And in your name we pray all these things. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 6. And he starts off this way. And it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So this is Isaiah speaking. We know him as the, uh, the prophet. Um, now, whether he's been speaking on behalf of the Lord for a while or whether this is actually the start of his ministry has kind of been debated. 
Um, but we do know this, that he, he sees this vision of the Lord. And it's in the year that King Uzziah died. And a little background on Uzziah. Um, he was a king. It says that he actually did right in the sight of the Lord. He led Israel into prosperity and peace. Israel is actually in a decent place in that sense. But what's a little tragic about his life is that Uzziah became proud. And so he went into the temple one day and he was burning incense and he did so in an unworthy manner, so much so uh, that the Lord actually struck him with leprosy because he grew too far beyond his station. And tragically, he lives out the rest of his life as an outcast. And he actually dies uh, resulting from the, the leprosy that God gave him. And what's really tragic about his, his life is that he did such a great job as the ruler, but they, he had a few compromises. And that compromise is that he failed to remove the high places. Now, this was uh, a place where people worshipped in disobedience to the law. So they weren't worshipping the Lord that they, in the way that they were supposed to, and so his rule was compromised. So Israel, at this point, was actually in a rather rebellious state. They were doing well in a material sense, but spiritually they were lacking and so now we see Isaiah being called to, to ministry by the Lord. And so Isaiah gets this wonderful vision of who God is. And it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And I love this contrast that he creates. Think about this. He's stating that Uzziah is dead, Uzziah has died, and yet notice that the Lord is not simply because the ruler has changed, simply because the the king had died, God was completely unmoved. He was alive. God never ceases to be. He's actually really been the only constant throughout all of history. I don't know if you guys think about this, but I oftentimes try to put God in these terms because it helps me to remember just how small I am. But think about this. You realize in 120 years, the world's population is going to completely turn over. All seven plus billion people are going to be gone. And you realize that God is still going to be God? That he will not cease to be. And this will continue on and continue on, and yet he will never be moved. Ever. That he has been the only constant character throughout all of history. That he was there in the beginning, he will be there in the end. He's always been. He has no beginning, he has no and and so he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, and he gets this vision that God is sitting. This implies rule. This implies governance. This implies his absolute uh, authority over all of creation. And I want to draw attention to this. Notice that he's sitting. You know, he's not running around. He's not frantically freaking out and trying to hold everything together. I don't know if any of you guys have have been in a position where you're kind of in charge of something. I've done a number of summer camps, and it's really easy to feel like that, where it's just like you're kind of running back and forth. You're trying to hold everything together. You're trying to put out fires. You're trying to make sure that everybody's happy, and you kind of feel like you're just barely kind of holding it together. I'm sure for those of you who are parents, you probably feel this way sometimes with your, with your kids, that you're just kind of barely just hanging on. And yet notice that God is sitting He's in control of the entire universe. He's sitting. He's relaxed. He's completely composed. He's not threatened by anything. He's not moved. Think about that. He's, he's holding the whole universe together. He's not moved. And he's ruling over everything. And so we see that he has this absolute 
authority. Basically, what he's stating is that he's always in control. It's not the UN. It's not the president or the government. It's not even us. We may even have the illusion of control, but at the end of the day, everyone and everything answers to him. Psalm 24.1 says that everything in the earth is, is his, including us. You know, oftentimes people can get worked up about the government. You know, they can get afraid. Well, you know, the government's doing this. Or what about these people that are secretly doing these things? And honestly, I don't, I don't fear the government much. And here's why. If you guys um, want to turn there, you can. But in Daniel chapter 2, there's something interesting that the Lord says about himself. Well, Daniel says this about him. But he says this in Daniel 2.21. And he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. You realize that even the people that are in power are in power because God put them there? Think about that. That he has such control over creation that even the people that are in power are in power because God actually has allowed them to be there. And so when people get worked up about the government, I don't really worry about it too much. And honestly, I'd like to see them start a war with God and see how that works out. (laughs) He's in control. He's the absolute authority. And think about this. Answers to nobody. I mean, at the end of the day, every last one of us answers to somebody. Children answer to their parents. People answer to the police. The police answer to the government. The government answers to the rest of the world. And ultimately, everybody on the earth answers to God. And yet, God answers to no one. Why? Because he is the absolute, most foremost authority over all things. And so I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. We see that he's high and lifted up, once again, indicating that he is above everything, that everything is subject to him. Everything belongs to him. There's nothing above him. He's superior in power. He's superior in knowledge. There's no one like him. And the train of his robe filled the temple. What's interesting about this is a, a train was really a badge of dignity in the east. It, it indicates royalty and majesty. Really, it speaks of his beauty. You know, one of the things that's kind of interesting is we can see this in, in all of creation. Um, there's a squid. Let me see if I can pronounce this correctly. It's the Abreliopsis squid. It's a mouthful. And check this out. It's a squid with small little light organs underneath its body. Now, what's interesting about this is that when it is hovering above a predator, those little light, that light that it produces will actually hide it within the sky. So it actually completely conceals its silhouette so a predator can't see it. Now, I don't know about you guys. Oftentimes, when I think of lights, I think of batteries and chargers, and I think of flashlights. You know, I think of something that needs electricity, and I and often wonder, it's like, I mean, think about this. Like, does, does this little squid come born with, like, a little wall char- charger? It, like, plugs its tentacle in. It's just like, I mean, think about it. It's like it's producing light underneath the water. And yet, this is one of a thousand different self-illuminating fish. I mean, one was impressive, and yet God saw fit to make thousands of them. Think about this. Another interesting fact. This will probably freak some of you out. My, my wife told me about this one. She's a, an artist. And think about this. You, you guys have seen the light spectrum, right? You've probably seen like where you have a prism and it fractures all the light. You've seen a rainbow, right? 
Have you guys ever thought about the fact that magenta is not in the rainbow? It's actually not part of the visible color spectrum or the visible light spectrum. You can look at it. Next time you look at a rainbow, try to find magenta. It's not there. And yet you can perceive it. That's God. Let me ask you this. Have you ever tried to make a new color? <laughs> just, just try to imagine a new color right now. Think about it. Something totally brand new that you've never seen before. You can't, can you? Not really. Some maybe different combination of blue and purple or green and yellow. But at the end of the day, it's really something we can perceive. And yet God, in all of his majesty, actually can create color. And so the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. And these seraphim are really interesting Creature, and here's why. Because this is really the only time that they are ever brought up in Scripture. And sadly, I think our our little version of Cupid has kind of ruined angels for a lot of people. These were not fat little babies firing hearts at people. In fact, so much so, these were creatures that when they speak, the foundation of the temple shakes. Oftentimes when people encounter angelic beings in Scripture, what happens is, is they freak out. And most of the time, their first words out of the angel's mouth is, don't be afraid. And so we see that these seraphim come into play. And really what their name means is is to burn. Seraph means to burn. And this suggests probably their burning zeal for the Lord. It could also refer to their uh, dazzling brightness. It's even possible that these uh, are exactly what Lucifer himself once was. And notice, they had six wings, and each one had six wings. And with two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. So, so far, Isaiah's getting this very majestic view of God, this very grand view of him and his character. And now he sees these seraphim, and they're in the presence of God. And the first thing that he notes is that they cover their faces, now keep in mind, they've, they've not fallen. They're not sinful. And yet, this shows their unworthiness to look upon the face of God. Such a powerful being that it freaks people out when they see him. And yet, they feel unworthy to look upon the face of God. And then they cover their feet. And this could more than likely actually refer to their entire lower half. But usually this was an act of reverence when you were in the presence of Eastern monarchs and it, uh, it, once again, it shows reverence, it shows devotion and, and service. And so these were beings that were in reverence of God. They felt unworthy to be in his presence. And with two they flew, and this displays ongoing activity in proclaiming God's holiness and glory. Now I want you guys to think about this. This is a creature that is obviously greater than us. <laughs> I mean, once again, they, people were freaked out when they saw him. And yet, they're in the presence of God. They're unfallen. They're, they're, they're not marred by sin, and yet they feel unworthy to be in his presence. And then notice what they do. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
Now, in, in saying holy, 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 there's some people who would believe that this is a reference to the Trinity or God's trying nature. Uh, I actually believe this is incorrect, though this is certainly true. We actually see that asserted later in verse 8. But here's more than likely what they're actually referring to. You see, three in the Bible is often the number of completion. This is the number of perfection. This is God's triune nature oftentimes refers to the fact that he is complete in and of himself. And then we also see that repetition is often used to emphasize a point or a characteristic. And so really what's being suggested here is a supreme or a complete holiness. As in, he's essentially saying the most holiest. And what's really interesting about this is it's also the only time that one of God's attributes is elevated to the third degree like this. I mean, if you think about it, nowhere in scripture do you see that he is wrath, wrath, wrath. That he is judgment, judgment, judgment. That he's mercy, 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 or grace, 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 or even love, love, love. This is only ever said of this attribute, of his And it would really seem to indicate that this is actually one of his defining attributes, one of the things that actually separates him from everything else as God. And really, one of the ways that we can understand this is it's everything that, in a sense, makes him God. It's the totality of his godness. Now, what's really interesting about this is what that really means is that he is completely different from us. See, oftentimes when we use this word holy for people, uh, oftentimes we understand it that is we are separated unto God, right? Whenever it says that we are to be holy for he is holy, we are to be separated unto him. We are supposed to be devoted to him. But when it comes to God, what this is really stating is that there's an infinite quantitative difference between God and the rest of his creation. There's nothing like him. And as a result, he is of infinite worth and value being as he is the only one. I mean, I'm sure you guys know that typically what determines something's value is really its uniqueness, right? Um, When it comes to diamonds, when it comes to gold, the thing that really makes it valuable is just how rare it is. And oftentimes the more rare it is, the more valuable it is. Um, even with diamonds, you know, the, the more rare they are, the more valuable they become. And if it's the only one, then you have something that's really truly of great value. Now imagine God is the only one of his kind. There is nothing like him. He's of infinite worth. And this is something that we really need to understand because I think it's very easy for us to make ourselves the most valuable thing in the universe, to become the center uh, of everything. Whether we intend to do it or not, it's very easy to do. That we can put ourselves at the center of the universe, but we need to understand that the most valuable thing in existence isn't you. It's not me. It's not our families. It's not the seven billion other people on earth. The most valuable thing in the world is God. And everything else really is just a drop in the bucket by comparison. I mean, Daniel 4 puts it this way. There's something very interesting that Nebuchadnezzar says about God. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with his story, but he he exalts himself very highly, and so as a result, the Lord uh, humbles him in a rather unique way and basically uh, turns him into a cow in every other way except physical. 
Um, He makes him eat grass. He makes his hair grow out. He causes him to lose his mind. And he humbles him. And yet, eventually he regains his, his, um, his faculties. And here's what's really interesting about what he says. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? He actually says that by comparison, nothing's like God. There's nothing that even comes close. And so this is his holiness. It means he's completely separate from all that he has created. It's the totality of his godness. So it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts really is just a reference to the fact that he is the Lord of heaven's army. He's the supreme ruler of all things temporal and eternal over heaven and earth. And the whole earth is full of his glory. Now notice it doesn't say it's full of his holiness, but it says it's full of his glory. And so what would his glory be? It's really the manifestation of his holiness, of his uniqueness, of his godness and everything that he's created. And so really what he's saying is that the whole earth speaks of the fact that he's not like us, that he is completely different, that he is completely separate. I mean, if, I don't know if you guys sometimes think about this, but sometimes I will look at things and just go, God created all of this. I mean, have you guys ever wondered like, how God did that, how he just spoke and everything came into existence. I mean, I could barely build something from Ikea and God's just like, earth, and there it is. And yet that's his power, that's his glory. The whole earth is full of it. As I said before, I mean, there's a a thousand self-illuminating fish. He's even unique in the way that he creates things. So the whole earth is full of his glory. And this is what they're crying out to the Lord. They're compelled to worship. And keep in mind, these are beings of immense power, and yet they feel compelled to worship God because of who he is. And then notice, it says, and the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to see the, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, but it's not a small thing. And oftentimes those stones are, uh, trying to see if there's something that's a good representation. Okay, well, they're really, really quite large, um, oftentimes weighing several thousand pounds. I mean, these are not, it's not a small thing. And it says that realistically that when they were crying out, it shook the Temple Foundation that they were crying out so loudly to the Lord that it shook. Once again, these are beings of immense power, and yet they're compelled to worship the Lord. They're subjected to him. They're holding him in high reverence because of who he is. I was filled with smoke. This is likely the the cloud of God's glory that uh, guided the Israelites through the wilderness. And so now imagine you're Isaiah. This is the vision he's had of God. 
I mean, imagine he, he's in the temple. He could just be having a time of worship. It doesn't really say why he was there. But he was in the temple, and he has this vision of the Lord, this God that is above everything else in creation, that is completely superior to everything that exists. There's nothing like him. He's above everything. He's in control of everything at all times. He's not moved by anything that happens. He is completely in control. And there's nothing like him. Now imagine you're Isaiah. Now notice his response to this God. And so I said, this is his reaction to the holiness and the glory of God that has been revealed to him. Woe is me for I am undone. I'm going to translate that for you. I'm a dead man. He's like, I'm toast. This is it. This is my end right here, right now. I'm gone. I mean, he has such a powerful vision of who God is, his holiness, his glory, and his reaction is, I'm going to (laughs) die. He's like, this is it. This is my end. I'm, I'm toast. There's no way that I can stand in the presence of this God and survive the experience. And this is actually pretty consistent with what God tells Moses. You guys remember what he says to Moses in Exodus? Moses is like, hey, just let me see a little bit of your glory. And God's like, nobody can look on my face and live. That it would actually have killed Moses if God did that. That's how holy he is. That's how magnificent he is. And what's interesting is, is that God is actually so good that it's actually dangerous to us. You realize that's actually being said? He's so holy, he's so pure, he's so righteous that for us to be in his presence, it is actually dangerous. It's dangerous. And so he says, woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Here's why Isaiah says this. He says he's a man of unclean lips because they understood that from out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you say really just reveals what's on the inside. And so for him to say that he is a man of unclean lips, really what he's saying is that I'm a wicked man. I'm not righteous. I'm not good. How can I stand in the presence of God? And then he says, I, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Remember, Israel was in rebellion. They weren't following after the Lord. They were still spiritually not in a good place. I mean, essentially, Isaiah is saying that, God, you are so pure and you are so holy that because I'm a sinful man, I'm going to be destroyed. He says, there's no way that I can survive this. He recognizes his own unrighteousness, his own unholiness as a result. Can I tell you, when you have a proper view of God, that's oftentimes what it does to us. When you really understand the depths of who he is and the depths of his goodness and his righteousness and his purity, oftentimes you have a very hard time standing in front of him and going, yeah, I'm a good person. (laughs) I don't know about you guys, but when I really focus in on that, I start to realize, like, I fall so short. And that's what happens here with Isaiah. He, he realizes that, he says, he says, I fall so short of the standard of God. And keep in mind, this is somebody that God's using. This is somebody who is righteous by comparison, and yet he's saying, I can't even 
be in the presence of God. Paul would even put it this way, that he says he's less than the least of all the saints. So take the, the least of the saints, the least of all believers, and then he's still below that. This is his response when he's in the presence of a holy God. And why? Because he's seen the Lord of hosts. He was, he was humbled because he was in awe of who God was. He saw God's purity. He saw his majesty. He saw his beauty. He saw his holiness. And that was his response. He says, I'm nothing compared to this God. He understood that he was the creation and that God was the creator. You know, a theologian once put it this way. The clearest sensation that a human being has when he experiences the holy is an overwhelming and overpowering sense of creatureliness. That is, when we are in the presence of God, we are humbled and become most aware of ourselves as creatures. And this is the opposite of Satan's original temptation, you shall be as God's. That's the experience that Isaiah is having. He's realizing he's the creation. He understood that he wasn't the center of his universe. That's, that's what this view of God does for him. Now notice, though, notice God's response in the midst of all of this. And this is what I find so sweet. This holy, righteous, perfectly good, perfectly just God who is so holy that he will actually destroy anything that is less than holy. And notice his response. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Isaiah's response is humility and repentance. He recognizes his own unworthiness to be in the presence of God and notice God's response. Mercy and grace and forgiveness. He sends one of the seraphim over with a hot coal and touches his lips with it. And I find this very interesting that he does this. He cleanses him with something that is pure. Now here's why this is weird. Oftentimes when you would actually look at the Levitical law, it was the thing that, would un- that was unpure that would make the pure thing impure. It was never the other way around. The children of Israel were often called to avoid certain things And as a result, they would stay richly pure. And if they came in contact with certain things, they would then be richly impure. And oftentimes these things had to do with death. Now here's why this is weird, is that it was actually the pure thing that made the impure thing pure. It didn't taint God. But God actually completely cleansed him. That God was actually so holy and so pure that it cleansed Isaiah. And so he gets mercy. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. And this is really what we see throughout the Gospels. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? 
I mean, this really is such a great representation of Jesus because that's exactly what happened. The thing that was pure came to that which was impure and purified it. Now, that was a very costly maneuver because it cost Jesus everything. But he purified us in very much the same way. That which was holy and righteous and pure came to us, which was unholy, unrighteous, and sinful. And he cleansed us. And then notice Isaiah's response. And we'll stop with this verse. And also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now notice, God obviously knows who he's going to send. He already knows the answer to this question. You know, he's not going like, man, I really don't know. I hope somebody steps up. <laughs> now it's like in the beginning of Genesis. Adam, where are you? I really can't find you. Help me out here. No, he's asking a question because he wants to give Isaiah an opportunity to serve. And notice how this changes Isaiah's heart. He goes from being unworthy to hopping at the opportunity to serve the Lord. And also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am. Send me. I'll go. I'll do it. He experiences this great mercy after this great humbling experience of really truly viewing who God was in the fullness of his character. And so what's the application of all of this for us? As I said in the beginning, there's a great danger to take the extraordinary and make him very ordinary. Oftentimes we will say that you know, God is a personal God, and I don't want to detract from that. It's very true. But I think sometimes we can so overemphasize the fact that he's personal that we actually bring him down to our level. That he becomes like us, that he's no different than us, that really he's just a a great guy. He was perfect, but he's no longer God. See, we can often grow so comfortable with God that we start to make him like us. As we grow used to the presence of God, and it's very easy to make God smaller than he actually is. And here's the result of this, is that we lose our awe of who he is. We stop to see him in the fullness of his glory, and instead of fearing God, we start to fear people. Instead of him being the final authority, culture is the final authority. Instead of God defining what is good and evil, we define what good and evil is. Instead of God being the focal point, we become the focal point. Instead of the Bible being about God, It's about us. And as a result, instead of desiring godliness, I begin to desire sin. And really, as a result, it cheapens all of his other attributes. See, there's a danger in making him like us. Because really, it's understanding the depths of his holiness and the fact that he is God, that he's not like us, that helps us to actually properly understand everything else about him. Because here's how it changes who he is. If he's a holy God who is not like us, who is much greater than we are, then it actually magnifies his love for us. Because it's no longer just some person who is really good. We're talking about the God of the universe, the one who is the authority over everything. The one who made everything. The one who is completely self-existent, who does not need a thing, and yet he loves us. 
magnifies his grace that that God that is so holy and so pure and so righteous who had every reason to just destroy mankind when we sinned. And yet he doesn't. Instead he shows us grace. Magnifies his mercy. It magnifies his forgiveness. And it makes us okay with his justice and his wrath because then we realize that we don't deserve it. Or we don't deserve his goodness. What we actually deserve was, was to be judged. And yet he shows us grace and mercy at the cost of his son. And as a result, not only does it help us understand who he is, it helps us to understand who we are. See, we are no longer the creator, but now we're the creation. We're no longer righteous. Instead, we understand that we're sinful. We're no longer capable. We're helpless. See, it creates brokenness and humility rather than pride and arrogance. For me, I don't, oftentimes when I start to adopt this view of God, I really, I have nothing to be proud of. Because even as the Bible says, my, my righteousness are as filthy rags. That even the good things that I do are still imperfect. You know, Charles Purgeon, I think, put it best when he said it this way. He said, I believe the holier a man becomes, the more he mourns over the unholiness which remains in him. And that's what happens. We begin to see ourselves properly. And though that's the negative side, there's also a positive side to this. Though it is humbling, we also understand now that a God who is of infinite value has also placed value in us. You guys realize that your value is not in what you do. What job you hold down, how much money you have, your gifts, your abilities, your talents your looks, it's none of those things. What actually gives you value is your relation to God as as his creation. It's because you're created in the image of God. And if an infinite God has placed value in you, then it's also something that nobody can take away. That that God gives you value. That can't be taken. You know what this also means is that the greatest being in existence is your ally. (laughs) Think about that. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who have given our lives to him, the greatest being in existence is on your side. Well, rather, you're on God's side. But, I mean, think about that. That there's nothing greater than him. I mean, like I said, there's nothing that threatens him. And whenever man shakes his fist at God, God probably is just like, that's cute. (laughs) It's like, oh, look at him try. (laughs) He's not threatened by us. There, there's no, I mean, he could just snap his fingers and that person would just, gone. Like, it's like, eh, I'm, I'm done with this. Now, he wouldn't do that because he, he loves us. He's gracious to us. But, but, I mean, that's the reality, that God is on our side. Also, the highest authority in all of existence forgives us. And as a result, that means we can also forgive ourselves. I think oftentimes we won't forgive ourselves over things that we've done, ways that we've sinned. And yet I think we forget that the one who actually defines good and evil has forgiven us. And so essentially when we don't forgive ourselves, we're saying that our judgment is actually greater than God's. (laughs) But that God has forgiven us. The one who's holy and righteous. And not only that, not only are we not holy, but he's also the same God that makes us holy. Although we're not righteous, he's also the one who makes us righteous. This is the very same God that's adopted us into his family. And lastly, here's what it 
also magnifies. It magnifies who Jesus is. Because I think oftentimes what we do have a tendency to do, and I still do this, even though I know this is correct, is that we can take Old Testament God and New Testament Jesus, and they're almost different things. But the reality is, is they're one and the same. Isn't that what Jesus said? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So you realize that the God is being spoken of right here is the same God that came in the form of a man to us. This God. This God. The God of all things, the one who created all things, the one who is the foremost authority and power out of all of creation is that Jesus who came in the form of a man for us. The very Jesus that went to a cross is this God. The very Jesus that died for you and took the punishment for your sin is this God. The very Jesus that loves you is this God. Doesn't his holiness and his majesty actually magnify that love? I mean, we're talking about the God of all the universe died for you. If that's not a sombering experience, I don't know what is. This God. This God is the one who bore a cross for our sin. You know, oftentimes people ask, well, it's like, you know, why do, why do you know, bad things happen to good people? And that's actually a very fair question. Why, why was it that Jesus went to the cross and not me? That's the reality of it. Why is it that this God had to pay the punishment for my sin? To me, that doesn't make sense. And yet, that's exactly what happened. This God died for us. And as a result, what happens is, is as we correctly understand who he is and who we are, it really changes our service. It no longer becomes about our gifts and our talents and our abilities. It becomes about God's power to work and to do. It no longer becomes about us. It becomes about God and serving him. You realize that's why Jesus said the, the two greatest commandments are to love God and then to love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the order that he puts that in. Love God. Because if you love God, what's going to happen is, is that you're going to love the people around you. When you love the Lord, it changes your service. And when you see him correctly, then you'll desire to serve him all the more. Because oftentimes, don't we desire to serve that which is greater than us? I mean, I don't know about you guys. Oftentimes, we, I don't really like necessarily serving things that are lower than me. <laughs> it's like, I, I think about how the way that we treat our dogs sometimes. It's just like, you're the creature. Get over there. Just be quiet. Get off my lap. And yet, we desire to be, to, to serve that which is greater than us. We also desire to be like and imitate that which we reverence and respect, don't we? You know, oftentimes I, I like playing drums and so oftentimes I'm looking to drummers that are better to, than me and trying to figure out what it is that they do and how they play things. And oftentimes I try to emulate the people that I respect most. And I'm sure you guys are the same way, whether it's you, you play sports or whether it is that you're an academic, whatever it is, maybe you're an artist or a musician like me, but ultimately we tend to f- pattern ourselves after the people that are better than us and the people that we respect. And the same thing is true with the Lord. When we reverence him in his proper nature. That's what happens. When he's greater than us, we tend to pattern our lives after his. We tend to listen to those that we most respect. And not only that, we're also in constant pursuit of that which brings us awe in our lives. I mean, we're hardwired for it. I mean, whether you like it or not, you were created to worship. That's per the Bible. That's not per Brandon. You were created for worship. 
That is your ultimate purpose in life, is to worship and glorify the Lord with everything that you are. We were created for his good pleasure. Now here's the thing, is that because we're fallen, we're either going to worship God or we're going to worship something else, but you will always worship something. And if we're not worshiping the Lord, if we're not in awe of who God is, if he's not greater than us, then what oftentimes happens is, is we are in awe of something else. Whether it's a hobby, whether it's some kind of sin, whether it's another person, we find ourselves in awe of something else. We'll either worship the creator or the creation. See, this is why this is so important. This is why this view of God is so important to everything that we do because what we're in awe of defines everything about us. It's what we pursue. It's what we devote our time and energy to. It's really what drives every action that we take. And if it's not God, then it's something else. And the times that I felt the driest in my life is because I've lost the awe of God. It became maybe even ministry, maybe even became my God rather than God himself. And so oftentimes I need to come back to this. And I think oftentimes we need to come back to this. Understanding that God's not like us He isn't. He's much greater than we are. I mean, it was just like I was telling uh, my wife earlier. Honestly, I probably have more in common. When I really compare myself to the Lord, I probably have more in common with that pew than God. (laughs) Because he's not like us. He's infinitely more complex and different than we are. The fact that he can create something from nothing, that with his voice, he brought everything into being. That it was his, he breathed into dust. And created us. You guys realize that we're literally, like, I mean, we're literally dirt creatures. <laughs> That's what we are. Dirt creatures made in his image, but dirt creatures nonetheless. It's, and yet God made us by, the, by his breath. And yet sometimes we can bring that God down to our level. Let's make sure that we leave him in that proper place. He, he's not like us. He's more magnificent than we could possibly ever imagine. He's more awesome than we could possibly imagine. He's greater and grander than anything that we have ever seen. I mean, Job has this whole experience. If you guys get a chance to read the book of Job, it's a really interesting story because he loses everything and yet God uses it to speak who he is into his life. And at the end, Job is like, I I spoke of things that were far too wonderful for me. He actually has the same response as Isaiah He says, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. He's like, I had no idea who I was talking about. That's the God that we worship. And when we view him that way, it changes everything about us, about who he is, about what he did for us. And when we think about him as that God, it even changes the gospel for us. Because that's the God that died for us. That's the God that forgave us. That's the God that gave us grace and mercy And if we thought we deserved it before, when we think of him in that way, we find it very hard to deserve it then. See, it's that God that loves us. That's the very God that came in the form of a man to love us. But we need to view him as that God nonetheless because that's the God who he is. And oftentimes I think we make him too small. And as a result, our prayers are smaller. We don't trust his ability to work as much. And instead, we can put all of that pressure on ourselves to, to work it out, to make it happen. And yet, this is the God that we serve. 
the one who can just bring things into existence if we need it. I mean, you realize when he fed the 5,000, he like, he just made fish and bread from nothing. He was just going, eh. <laughs> he just made it out of nothing. That's the God that we serve. But I challenge you, make sure you have this understanding of who God is. Because though, yes, he's personal and he's relational. And honestly, the fact that this God is personal and relational to us actually, I think, just magnifies that. It's like, how can a God that big actually be personally involved in every last one of our lives? You guys think about that ever? That's crazy that this God can actually be personal with us. And yet, at the same time, he can be far greater than even our understanding can comprehend. And so I'm going to ask you, what gives you awe? What gives you awe? Because I think oftentimes, I mean, if I'm really being honest with you guys, oftentimes there's a battle in my life over, over my awe and my worship. Whether it's a hobby, whether it's ministry, whether it's some kind of sin that I wrestle with, whatever it is, oftentimes there's a battle going back and forth. And I challenge you guys to look at that. What gives you awe? What inspires awe in your life? Because it's going to dictate the way that you view yourself, the way that you view God, the way that you serve him. It's going to dictate really what you do with your time, where you spend your time, effort, and energy, what you spend your resources on. I mean, it affects everything about us. Because it's what we were created for. It's our purpose. And if it's not God, then it's something else. And so that's why I call you to remember that this is the God that we serve, a God that's bigger than our understanding who's much greater than we are in every possible way. And yet it's the very God that loves us. The very God that came down to us. The very same God who gave us his word. The very same God who shows us grace and mercy. And for me, when I start to view God this way and I think of that, it doesn't make any sense to me why he would do that. It really doesn't. It doesn't. Because what also happens is I start to see myself for who I really am. And I can tell you, Brandon is not a righteous man. (laughs) He's not a good person. I'm still just as sinful and broken as everybody else. I'm just redeemed. That's it. And so I challenge you, what gives you awe? Because if it's not God, it's going to be something else. And hopefully... What Isaiah saw here kind of gives you a little jump start because I know in my life I need times like this where I recognize my unworthiness and to remember really who God is. To remember that he's not like me. Because when I make him like me, I get bored of him. But when I will never understand everything about him, when he's much greater than my understanding, when he's much greater than I am in every possible way, that's a God that's worthy of worship. That's what it boils down to. If your God is like you, if you could understand everything about him, then he wouldn't be worthy of your worship. He really wouldn't. But the beauty of it is, is he's much greater than our understanding. There's even things you'll find in the Bible that there's two things that honestly will conflict in our brains, and yet to God they make perfect sense. And so I challenge you, read read your Bibles, understand the God that you worship, because the bigger he is, the more you're going to be in awe of him. And the more it's going to change your life and who you are and the way that you serve him, the way that you even approach him. And so I'll leave you with a question that I've already stated before, but what, what gives you awe? What gives you awe in your life?
Father, we just thank you. God, for who you are. God, thank you that you are greater than us in every possible way. God, thank you that you are always in control. God, that nothing ever gets past your sight. God, thank you that you even govern the governments. God, they're even placed there by you. God, you laid the foundations of the earth. God, you're the one who causes the sun to rise and fall. God, you're the one who gives us the rain. You're the reason we can take a breath every time we breathe, God, because you put that breath in our lungs. And yet, God, thank you that in all of that, you still love us. That God, despite how big you are and how righteous you are and perfect and good you are, God, that you love us. God, we're just like Israel in that sense. God, we're, we're rebellious. God, as Paul said, those things that I will to do, I don't do. Those things I will not to do, I do. God, that's the story of every last person in here. God, this constant struggle to walk in the spirit while fighting the flesh. God, we don't deserve that mercy. We don't deserve that grace. We don't deserve that love. And yet you freely give it. God, thank you. That we would never lose our awe of who you are. God, that you will always be greater than our understanding. That God, when we start to become proud and arrogant, just when we think we've figured you out, God, would you reveal something new to us, God, that blows our minds. That God, we would never feel that we are greater than you because we're not. God, would we never have the same heart as Uzziah, God, to do right in your eyes and yet to, to blow it, to think that we're above you because we're not. God, you are the creator and we are the creation. God, would we never forget that? But we are also the creation that you love. And so God, would you be with us? God, continue to speak into our lives. And God, we're so grateful for everything that you do to us. God, would you continue to draw us to repentance? God, if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you, God, that you would draw them to repentance and faith. God, that they would come to know you tonight as their personal Lord and Savior. And God, for those of us who have been walking with you for a while, God, would you continue to work in us? God, continue to sanctify us. God, if there's anybody in here who's walked away from you, God, would you draw them back? And God, bring them back into that right relationship with you. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray all these things. Amen.